please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Before the episode, let me tell you about an amazing online boutique that I just know you're going to love. Save Boutique, that's spelled S-A-I-V, is a great place for clothes, accessories, and shoes. One of the great things about Save is that it's size inclusive. Most items Save offers are available in sizes from small to 3X, and they're looking into ways to offer even more sizing options. They also drop new items every week, so there are always new things to choose from. They even offer three buy now, pay later options. Shop Pay, Klarna, and Afterpay. One last thing, they're offering a discount to DoorKey listeners. Just enter the code DOORKEY, that's D-O-O-R-K-E-Y, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount. I even put a link to Save Boutique in the description notes of this episode that will take you directly there and automatically apply the discount at checkout. So check out the amazing clothes, accessories, and shoes Save Boutique, that's S-A-I-V Boutique.com, has to offer. You'll be so glad you did. Hello, this is Dorkey. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history. And I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past, and I'd like to share what I've learned, and my opinion about what I've learned. And I hope you enjoy it. King Tutankhamun was a pharaoh of ancient Egypt. He was born in 1341 BCE and lived until 1323 BCE. But I need to go even further back in time, just a little bit, to explain some context, because he was born into a lot. For clarity's sake, Tutankhamun is most commonly known to us in modern times as King Tut, so I'm going to be referring to him as that from now on. King Tut's father was the pharaoh Akhenaten, who was married to Nefertiti. Nefertiti wasn't Akhenaten's only wife, as pharaohs had many wives, but Nefertiti was the one with the title Great Royal Wife. I always thought that she was King Tut's mother. But no, they did DNA testing on a mummy of a woman that they unfortunately don't know the name of. She's just known as the Younger Lady. But through that DNA testing, they found that the Younger Lady was actually King Tut's mother and Akhenaten's sister. I know, but this was an ancient Egyptian pharaoh thing. Ancient Egyptians believed their pharaohs were divine, and wanted to keep as much of that divinity in the pharaoh's bloodline as possible. So, for a pharaoh 
to marry his sister and even have children with her wouldn't have been considered strange. Egypt had always been a polytheistic society with many, many gods. But about five years into his reign as pharaoh, Akhenaten had a change in belief and changed Egyptian society from polytheistic to monotheistic and insisted every Egyptian start worshiping one god, the sun god. I just wanted to mention here that as pharaoh, he was considered the living embodiment of divinity. So by making the culture monotheistic, this automatically made him the center of worship. Pretty convenient, if you ask me. He also moved Egypt's capital from Thebes to a previously unoccupied site he named Akhetaten, meaning the place where the Aten becomes effective. All of this was super controversial, and the Egyptians were not happy about these changes, which, fair. So this is what was going on when Akhenaten died, and his son, King Tut, became pharaoh. The end of Akhenaten's reign is murky. The pharaoh most likely died during his 17th year as pharaoh, but it's uncertain how he died, mostly because we're not sure if we've found his remains or not. The royal tomb intended for Akhenaten at the new capital he chose did not contain a royal burial, which makes historians wonder what happened to his body. Which makes historians wonder what happened to his body. It's thought that a skeleton found in a tomb in the Valley of the Kings could belong to him because the tomb contained numerous grave goods, including the coffin in which the remains were found, belonging to Akhenaten and other figures from the period of his reign. However, like many topics pertaining to Akhenaten, this issue remains unclear and is the subject of much scholarly debate. So, King Tut was only eight or nine when he became pharaoh. I wish I could be more precise, but unfortunately, this all happened so long ago that it's hard to be exact, and I'm honestly a bit impressed that they've been able to narrow King Tut's age within just a couple of years. Because he was still a child, there was a sort of regency set up. A man named I was on this council. This is the man who became pharaoh after King Tut died. King Tut not only switched the official religion back to its original polytheism, and also moved the capital back to Thebes, which, good for him, since the people weren't happy with the way his dad had been running things. Being the ancient Egyptian pharaoh that he was, he married his paternal half-sister, and please forgive the pronunciation with all of these names, Anke Sesemun. They had two daughters, although neither of them survived infancy. Unfortunately, King Tut had many health issues. He had a deformity of his left foot along with bone necrosis that required the use of a cane, several of which were found in his tomb. He also had scoliosis and had contracted several strains of malaria. King Tut's reign as pharaoh was short, only about 10 years. That time was mostly spent trying to fix the economic and social turmoil that still hung over the country from his father's rule. There was also various building works at this time, including the restoration of some temples at Karnak and Thebes, worshipping the old gods, as well as efforts to repair the diplomatic relationships with other countries that had fallen to the side during that time. The reason King Tut's reign was so short is because, unfortunately, he died when he was only 19. 
Another unfortunate thing is that there aren't any surviving records of exactly how he died. There are many theories as to what happened to him, from poor health, a chariot accident, to even murder. But no concrete cause has been discovered. What is suspected, and makes sense to me, is that whatever caused his death was unexpected, as the tomb he was found in was a lot smaller than usual for someone of his status, and was most likely meant for someone else. So, this young pharaoh, who most likely died unexpectedly, was hurriedly entombed. The location of the tomb was eventually lost, being buried by debris from other tombs, and workers' houses were built over the tomb entrance. He was kind of lost to history. It's actually kind of sad when you look at it that way, but these things can, and obviously do, happen. We're going to fast forward through time now, to 1922 A.C.E. King Tut was barely a footnote. I mean, they kind of knew of him from a few records regarding his reign and objects they had discovered mentioning him, but they didn't really know much about him and hadn't found his tomb. At this time, Egypt was sort of a British colony. It was technically ruled by an Egyptian monarch, but managed by a British representative who oversaw a government staffed by Egyptians but ran by the British. Egyptology, the study of ancient Egypt, was overseen by the Antiquities Service, a department of the Egyptian government. New excavations of ancient sites were heavily dependent on the system known as partage, or division of finds. Basically, museums or private collectors of ancient artifacts would fund an expedition in exchange for a share of the artifacts, usually half, while the remainder went to the Antiquity Service and its museum, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. A man named Howard Carter became the Antiquity Service's inspector for Upper Egypt, including the Valley of the Kings, in 1900. Based at Luxor, he oversaw a number of excavations and restorations at nearby Thebes. While in the Valley of the Kings, he supervised the systematic exploration of the valley by the American archaeologist Theodore Davis. This is all very impressive to me, but it's even more impressive when you find out that Howard Carter was only 26 years old at the time. I have to admit that my first reaction when I found that out was to just assume that he must have been some aristocrat who was just given this position because of his family or something like that. Well, I'm pleased to say that I was wrong. Carter seems to have been legit. I mean, as legitimate as an archaeologist in 1900 could be, anyway. He originally went to Egypt at 17 as an artist to help copy tomb decoration and kind of worked his way up from there. He was praised for his improvements in the protection of and accessibility to existing excavation sites and his development of a grid block system for searching for tombs. The Antiquity Service also provided funding for Carter to head his own excavation projects. In 1914, Lord Carnarvon of England received the concession to dig in the Valley of the Kings and had Carter lead the work searching for any tombs missed by previous expeditions, in particular that of King Tut. However, 
The excavations were soon interrupted by the First World War. Side note, Carter spent years of the war working for the British government as a diplomatic courier and translator. He resumed his excavation work towards the end of 1917. By 1922, Lord Carnarvon had become impatient after several years of finding very little and told Carter he would only fund one more season of work in the Valley of the Kings. Carter returned to the Valley of the Kings and started reinvestigating a spot he had already investigated a few seasons before but abandoned. Then, a young boy accidentally stumbled on a stone that turned out to be the top of a flight of steps cut into the bedrock. Carter had the steps partially dug out until the top of a mud-plastered doorway was found. The doorway was stamped with indistinct cartouches. Cartouches were oval seals with hieroglyphic writing that indicated royalty. Carter ordered the staircase to be refilled and sent a telegram to Carnivon, who arrived from England two and a half weeks later, accompanied by his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert. I need to stop right here for a moment. If I was in that position, I can't imagine waiting two and a half weeks to open it. I mean, that's an ancient Egyptian tomb. How could anyone wait to see what was inside? The anticipation alone would be the death of me. Once Carnivon arrived, the stairway was cleared again, and they found the outer doorway. This door was removed, and then the tomb itself was revealed. I'm going to read this next part describing the opening of King Tut's tomb directly from Wikipedia. Carter, with Carnivon, Lady Evelyn, and assistant Arthur Callender in attendance, made a tiny breach in the top left-hand corner of the doorway, using a chisel that his grandmother had given him for his 17th birthday. He was able to peer in by the light of a candle and see that many of the gold and ebony treasures were still in place. He did not yet know whether it was a tomb or merely an old cache, but he did see a promising sealed doorway between two sentinel statues. Carnivorn asked, Can you see anything? Carter replied, Yes, wonderful things. Carter had, in fact, discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. The tomb was then secured, as they had to wait to go in until it could be entered in the presence of an official of the Egyptian Department of Antiquities the next day. However, that night, Carter, Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Callender apparently made an unauthorized visit, becoming the first people in modern times to enter the tomb. Okay, I know this is against the rules, but, I mean, can you blame them? The next morning, the tomb was inspected in the presence of an Egyptian official. Electric lighting illuminating a vast hall of items, including gilded couches, chests, thrones, and shrines. They also saw evidence of two further chambers, including the sealed doorway to the inner burial chamber, guarded by two life-size statues of King Tut. The tomb was virtually intact and would ultimately be found to contain over 5,000 items. Realizing the size and scope of the task ahead, Carter sought help from the Metropolitan Museum's excavation team working nearby, who readily agreed to lend a number of his staff, including an archaeological photographer, and the Egyptian government loaned an analytical chemist. King Tut's tomb 
is considered the best preserved and most intact tomb of a pharaoh ever found in the Valley of the Kings, and the press and public was very excited. But because Lord Carnarvon had sold the exclusive rights to one newspaper, only one reporter from that paper was allowed on the scene. The vivid descriptions of this reporter helped to establish Carter's reputation with the public. Toward the end of March 1923, Lord Carnarvon contracted an infection that turned into pneumonia while staying in Luxor near the tomb site and died in Cairo. His widow kept her late husband's concession in the Valley of the Kings and allowed Carter to continue his work. Carter's meticulous assessing and cataloging of the thousands of objects in the tomb took nearly 10 years. Most of the items were moved to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Carter became famous for making this discovery and received many honors for it. The Order of the Nile, third class, from King Fuad I of Egypt, an honorary degree of Doctor of Science by Yale University, and an honorary membership in the Real Academia de la Historia of Madrid, Spain. Carter wrote several books on Egyptology and gave a series of illustrated lectures on the excavation of King Tut's tomb including a tour of Britain, France, Spain, and the U.S. President Coolidge even got a private lecture from Carter. I know that all I've done up to now is sing Carter's praises, but I literally just found this out while researching this episode and need to mention it. Just this year, a 1934 letter to Carter from a friend came to light, accusing him of stealing from King Tut's tomb. Carter had given him an amulet, and assured him it had not come from the tomb. But Reginald Engelbach, director of the Egyptian Museum, later confirmed its match with other samples originating in the tomb. Egyptologist Bob Breer said the letter proved previous rumors and the contemporary suspicions of Egyptian authorities that Carter had been siphoning treasures for himself. <sighs> I'm so disappointed. I'm very much in agreement with the great philosopher Indiana Jones when he says that belongs in a museum. In a time when ancient artifacts were being plundered, looted, and disrespected, I mean, don't even get me started on unwrapping parties or the color mummy brown. Everything I'd ever heard and read led me to believe Carter wasn't like that. I was impressed that Carter seemed to not only be knowledgeable, but respectful and honest when he did his work. It appears that wasn't so. I left all the glowing, positive things I wrote about him in the script because it's me finding this out in real time. I really did believe in him. Look, in terms of archaeologists of his time, what Carter did doesn't even come close to the level of grossness of others in his field. I'm not saying that to excuse his behavior, but to try to put it into context. This also doesn't exactly erase all the good things I said about him. Just imagine a thick double strike through the word honest. Oh, Carter, I'm so disappointed in you. So after all of this, let's talk about what was in the tomb. The contents of the tomb are by far the most complete example of a royal set of burial goods in the Valley of the Kings. There were 5,398 objects. Items were in all four chambers of the tomb, as well as in the corridor. 
there were 413 Shabtis, which are figurines intended to do work for the king in the afterlife, and more than 200 pieces of jewelry. Some objects had been damaged by periods of humidity and dryness. Nearly all other in the tomb had dissolved, and some fabrics had turned into a black powder. Some wooden objects were warped, and their glue dissolved, leaving them in a very fragile state. Every exposed surface was covered with an unidentified pink film. It's been suggested that film was some kind of dissolved iron compound that came from the rock or the plaster. In the process of cleaning, restoring, and removing the damaged artifacts, the excavators labeled each object or group of objects with a number from 1 to 620, using letters to distinguish individual objects within a group. The antechamber contained 600 to 700 objects. Its west side was taken up by a tangled pile of furniture and small objects, like baskets of fruit and boxes of meat. Several dismantled chariots took up the southeast corner, while the northeast contained a collection of funeral bouquets, and the north end of the chamber had two life-size statues of King Tut that flanked the entrance to the burial chamber. These statues are thought to have either served as guardians of the burial chamber or as figures representing the king's ka, an aspect of his soul. Other objects in the antechamber were several funerary beds with animal heads, an alabaster lotus chalice, and a painted box depicting King Tut in battle, which Carter regarded as one of the finest works of art in the tomb. Carter thought even more of a gilded and inlaid throne depicting King Tut and his wife in the art style of his father. He called it the most beautiful thing that has yet been found in Egypt. Boxes in the antechamber contained clothing, including tunics, shirts, kilts, gloves, and sandals, as well as cosmetics like creams and coal. Scattered in various places in the antechamber were pieces of gold and semi-precious stones from a corslet, a ceremonial version of the armor that Egyptian kings wore into battle. Reconstructing the corslet was one of the most complex tasks the excavators faced. This room also contained a wooden dummy of King Tut's head and torso. It bears marks that may indicate it once wore a corslet, and Carter suggested it was a mannequin for the king's clothes. The annex contained more than 2,000 individual artifacts. It had beds, stools, and jars made of stone and pottery containing wine and oils. The room had food, more shop teas, and many wooden funerary models, like models of boats. It also held a lot of weaponry, such as bows, throwing sticks, and swords, as well as ceremonial shields. Other objects in the annex were personal possessions that King Tut might have used as a child, such as toys, a box of paints, and a fire lighting kit. Most of the space in the burial chamber was taken up by the sarcophagus that was enclosed by four gilded wooden shrines. The burial chamber also contained more burial goods, including jars and religious objects, such as immediate fetishes. Side note, I didn't know what those were, so I looked it up. An Inuit fetish is a stuffed, headless animal skin, 
often of a feline or bull. The fetish was tied by the tail to a pole, terminating in a lotus bud and inserted into a stand. The item was present in ancient Egyptian funerary rites from at least the earliest dynasties. Although its origin and purpose is unknown, it dates back as far back as the first dynasty, 3100 to 2890 BCE. Thanks, Google. Other items in the burial chamber included oars, fans, and walking sticks. Each wall of the chamber bore a niche containing a brick of a type that Egyptologists call magic bricks because they are inscribed with passages from a spell from the funerary text known as the Book of the Dead and are intended to ward off threats to the dead. The decoration of the shrines includes portions of several funerary texts. All four shrines have excerpts from the Book of the Dead. The outermost shrine is inscribed with the earliest known copy of the Book of the Heavenly Cow, which describes how Ra, who was the Egyptian sun god, reshaped the world into its current form. The second shrine bears a funerary text that is found nowhere else, although texts with similar themes are known from the tombs of Ramses VI and Ramses IX. Like them, it describes the sun god and the netherworld, using a rare form of hieroglyphic writing that uses non-standard meanings for each hieroglyphic sign. The sarcophagus is made of quartzite, but with a red granite lid, painted yellow to match the quartzite. It is carved with the images of four protective goddesses and contained a golden, lion-headed frame on which rested three nested coffins in human shape. The outer two coffins were made of gilded wood inlaid with glass and semi-precious stones. The innermost coffin was mostly made of solid gold. King Tut's mummified body laid inside. There were 143 items on the body and contained within the layers of mummy wrappings, including articles of clothing such as sandals, many amulets and other jewelry, and two daggers. King Tut's head had a beaded skull cap and a gold headpiece on it, all of which was encased in the golden mask of King Tut. That mask has become one of the most iconic ancient Egyptian artifacts in the world. In the doorway of the treasure room, yes, after all that, there was a treasure room, stood a shrine topped by a statue of the jackal god Anubis, in front of which lay a fifth magic brick. Against the east wall, was a tall, gilded shrine containing the canoptic chest where King Tut's internal organs were placed after mummification. Most canopic chests contain separate jars. King Tut's consists of a single block of alabaster carved into four compartments, each containing an inlaid gold coffinet that housed one of the king's organs. Between the Anubis Shrine and the Canopic Shrine stood a wooden sculpture of a cow's head representing the goddess Hathor. There were many wooden models, including more boats and a model granary, as well as many more shoptees. Boxes in this room held much of the tomb's jewelry. A nested set of small coffins contained a lock of hair belonging to Taiyi, the wife of Amenhotep III who is thought to have been King Tut's grandmother. 
One box contained two miniature coffins in which King Tut's stillborn daughters were interred. They've run all the modern diagnostic tests they could on King Tut's mummy. DNA tests and CT scans showed he suffered from malaria, a fractured lower leg, and congenital deformities associated with inbreeding that was common among Egyptian royalty. Testing also showed that he had a cleft palate and fairly long head, as well as a curved spine and fusion of the upper vertebrae. Okay, I debated if I should even bring this up, but I decided to talk about it and do what I can to put rumors to rest. For many years, there was talk of a curse of the pharaohs, probably fueled by newspapers seeking sales back when the tomb was discovered. These rumors emphasized the early death of some of those who had entered the tomb. The rumor was that there was a curse upon anyone who entered King Tut's tomb, that they were doomed. The most prominent death was the one I mentioned earlier, the death of George Carnivon. It's true that he died five months after the discovery of the tomb, but he didn't die of a curse. His cause of death was an infection that turned into pneumonia. In fact, a study showed that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened, only eight died within a dozen years. Howard Carter died of lymphoma in 1939 at the age of 64. The last survivors included Lady Evelyn Herbert, Lord Carnivon's daughter, who was among the first people to enter the tomb after its discovery in November 1922, who lived for another 57 years and died in 1980, and American archaeologist J. O. Kenneman, who died in 1961, 39 years after the event. So, as fun as it is to think and talk about an ancient Egyptian curse killing all that would dare disrupt the pharaoh's tomb, this just wasn't what happened with King Tut. Sorry to be a party pooper, but there was no curse. And that's all the time I'm going to devote to that. So that's what we know about King Tut. He probably would have been lost to history if Howard Carter hadn't found his tomb. The ancient Egyptians had a deep belief that if a person were properly prepared for the afterlife, his or her soul was immortal. The ka, or soul, accompanies an individual throughout life, and then after death it leaves the body to enter into the realm of the dead. An individual's ka could not exist without his or her body. Extensive rituals and preparation of the body for death, which included tomb-building, mummification, and funerary ceremonies, was meant to protect the body and the soul for the afterlife. These beliefs mean that by being lost to history, King Tut didn't exist anymore. By finding his tomb and the entire world learning about him and his name, King Tut has truly become immortal, and I think there's something poetic about that. Some of the sources I used for this episode are ars.org, CNN, National Geographic, History.com, and, as always, Wikipedia. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. 
or let me know if there's something in particular in history you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast. Join it and be part of our community. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow. But more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. 